Would you join me in Matthew 5? Uh, just thinking there a while ago. What we teach and the way we live life is a, a mystery to people. I promise you this, there are people in Anderson County this morning think we're nuts for not sleeping in. Why in the world would you get up and go there all the time? And then when they hear some of the things we've been reading out of Jesus' teaching, they really think we're nuts. Y'all have lost it. And then when they hear what we're going to look at today, you guys are absolutely certifiably crazy if you think you're going to live this out. Are you getting ready to see what I'm talking about? This, this is not human. But sometimes uh, the Lord does things in our lives that cannot be explained humanly. And so we live by faith. And our, our goal is to live obediently. Um, I'm going to go right into the text in just a moment. I'm gonna, I know Mike mentioned it earlier, but tomorrow night and the next four Mondays, Lord willing, uh, there will be a study uh, take place in here. It is billed to the ladies and geared to the ladies. But I know there were at least two or three men, I think, that mentioned, like, hey, um, we don't want to be left in the dark on these things. And so this is not a regular church service. Uh, Deanna will be teaching here. I put a lot of study and a lot of other things will be brought into that. I've not studied this out nearly to that degree. Um, we talked about some things along these lines on a couple of Wednesday nights in a Chip Ingram study. But uh, if, if any of you guys want to slip in, I think that'd be okay. I don't think they'll shut you down and like, yeah, you're not allowed, get out of here. Um, but uh, I know some of you have, have asked that. Uh, like, hey, what if I want to be able to kind of talk this out with my wife, kind of see the need for this, uh, then you feel free to come on. That's your choice. It's not being pushed upon you in any way. But if you'd like to do that, that is fine. Matthew chapter 5, all right? Here we go. This is part 5 of a section where Jesus is giving some teaching and how the law of Moses had been relaxed in his day by the Jewish teachers. And so a very unusual passage this week, verse 38. We've got five verses this week, Lord willing, verse 38. Jesus says, you have heard that it was said. So here's what's the word. It's what they've heard for a long time. An eye for an eye. Taste that. You've heard it was said, an eye for an eye, and a tooth for a tooth. So an eye, you did something, injured someone's eye, it's going to cost you your eye. If it was a tooth that was involved, it's going to cost you a tooth. Very fair. We read that, think that absolutely makes sense, and it does. This is very reasonable, uh, very sensible, very fair. But as Jesus has done four other times, here he comes again. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. That's an astounding phrase. Let that sink in. Jesus just said, but I say, do not resist the one who is evil. Frankly, I don't know fully what to do with that. I'm just going to tell you, confessing. And if you have an interest to know what Jesus says, you should be thinking, what would you say if you were up here? You've heard eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Some of you are thinking, 
wonder what's going to be said about that, or how can we explain that away? hope we got a good way to explain that away. That doesn't sound right. Well, it gets better. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. What? Let him have your cloak. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you. Grace view. Give to the one who begs from you. And do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Let's back up and read all those five verses again. Here we go. You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak also. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you, and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. I'm not the only one. All of us who are Christians are called to make disciples of people, and obviously that means make converts to put your faith and trust in Christ. But it goes beyond that. We're supposed to be teaching the teachings of Christ, which he taught his apostles, and that, in essence, is going to fill out the New Testament. We're supposed to not just teach it to know it in our head, teach it to observe these things. And I have found this to be a challenge, not just to teach, but also to live out. And so as we've gone through this, what we found is I keep springing from verses 17 to 20, which was two months ago. Here's what we found. Jesus says, I've not come to abolish the law. I've come to fulfill the law. It talks about Christ. He's in a unique spot to clarify what the law means. He then exalts the law and says, Till heaven and earth pass, not the smallest little part of the law will go unfulfilled. It's going to be accomplished. And so for that reason, he teaches, do not relax the law. Don't relax in how you teach it. Don't relax in how you live it. And then he goes out and says, oh, by the way, your righteousness had better exceed that of the scribes and Pharisees. And as we've gone in through four sections that Christ has taught, it's become pretty apparent that what he teaches would be much more righteous than the scribes and the Pharisees. And, of course, we know that ultimately this book is going to teach us we need a, an alien righteousness, an outside righteousness. We need the righteousness of Christ if we're going to be more righteous than the scribes and Pharisees. We're going to have a hard time doing these things. And so Christ has taught us, you've heard don't murder I say don't even have anger in your heart. Don't be insulting to people. You've heard don't commit the act of adultery. I tell you don't even look with lustful intent. It's not about what you saw. It's about why did you look. Why are you looking? Why are you looking? What's your intent? Is it lustful intent? You've heard if you're going to divorce, then do your paperwork and give the certificate. Christ teaches don't even have divorce. Don't break up the one flesh union that's in your marriage. Stay in that marriage. Let it be a reflection of Christ's relationship with the church. You've heard it said, don't swear falsely. Christ says, I say, don't swear at all. Live so honestly that you don't have to pull in God's name. I swear by God. Or I swear I'm telling you the truth. Don't have to say that because you live so honestly. Everyone knows that what you're saying is the truth. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for tooth. I say to you, don't resist the one who is evil. Turn the other cheek. All right, we've got a lot to cover. Um, so let's jump right in to the first of two points. Each of the points this morning has some sub-ideas underneath them. First point's much shorter. Let's talk about for a moment the ancient law of retaliation. And I call it the ancient law of retaliation because, and I don't get too technical here, but 
when Moses wrote this law from God in 1445 B.C. Now remember when we're doing B.C., our numbers are getting larger the further back in history we go, whereas now that we're on this side of Christ, our numbers get, farther, get larger as we go into the future. So the larger numbers are in the further past, in the back, B.C. So around 1445, Moses writes this down. But this was not unique to his law. This particular law already existed. This is like a universal law. This is an ancient law that was even found as early as like 2200 B.C. in the law code of Hammurabi, who was the Babylonian king. The great Babylonian king had already written this out, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. This already existed. Go with me if you would. Hold your spot here. Look at Leviticus chapter 24, and we'll find one of at least three places in the Old Testament where this law existed. Leviticus chapter 24. So we have our main passage today, and I'll have you join me in like five or six other little short passages this morning. Everything's springing from Matthew 5. Leviticus 24, here we'll find the ancient law. Look at verse number 19. Here's one of the versions. If anyone injures his neighbor, as he has done, it shall be done to him. Let that sink in. Hey, you injured him. As it was done, it should be done to you. Fracture for fracture. Oh, you broke a bone? You broke that bone? That bone's going to get broken with you. Eye for eye. Tooth for tooth. Other passages say stripe for stripe. Affliction for affliction. Burn for burn. You do that to them, it's going to happen to you. Look at verse 20 again. Fracture for fracture. Eye for eye. Tooth for tooth. Whatever injury he has given a person shall be given to him. And so we think, what is the purpose? This is a great law. What is the purpose of this ancient law? Well, it serves at least three purposes. Write them down. We'll go through quickly. Number one, it is to deter and punish crime. Both of those, I say first it would be to deter crime. You need to know that if you do something to someone and they get injured, whatever injury you do to them is going to be done to you. So that's a deterrent and it's a punishment. So if you strike someone and their eye is damaged or they lose their eye, you are going to lose your use of that eye. If you hit someone and their tooth comes out, you're going to lose that tooth. If you break someone's arm bone, then you're going to have that arm broken with you. This is totally fair. If you do something, then you have to receive the punishment for your crimes. And so hopefully as someone's looking at it, like, I don't want that to happen to me, then don't do that to them. It deters crime, and once the crime is punished, it punishes the crime. All this is designed to protect innocent people. But the second reason, number two, it's to protect the guilty. You may say, to protect the guilty? The guilty don't need to be protected, Jeff. They need to be punished. They're going to be punished. They're going to receive the same level of punishment that they inflicted on the other person. But the reason here is there needs to be a protection for the guilty. Here's, you've heard this before, right? The punishment must fit the crime. The punishment is not to be less than the crime. as punishment is not to be greater than the crime. What this is doing here is protecting the guilty against human nature. I'm not the only one in here that when someone does wrong to me, my natural instinct is to do probably more back to you. Hey, you started it. Oh, yeah? You do that to me? You do that to mine? Guess what's going to happen? And we're going to come probably a little over the top. You damage someone that I love, you knock their eye out. Well, you're going to go blind. I'm going to knock both of your eyes out. That's how we think. 
You knock their tooth out, I'm going to knock your eye out. Now think about that. Eye for a tooth. No, the passage says eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Eye for a tooth, that's not a fair trade. You got like 28 or 30 teeth, you have two eyes. That's not a good trade. So you don't trade off eye for tooth. This is a protection against the, 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 the guilty person. Some people even have such a disdain for folks. You've probably heard someone say, you step foot on my property, I'll kill you. They're not talking about you invading my home and getting ready to kill my family, threat. They just, and usually that's talk, right? But there's some nutcases out there. They seriously mean it. I told you, you ever step foot? They're trying to kill this person. Why? You, you, you did something to my tractor years ago. Like, wait a minute. They did something to your tractor, now you're going to kill them. That's not eye for eye. That's, that's way out of balance. So these things start, these whole blood feuds between people. Eye for an eye. That's the rule. A couple more ways to think of this. We get out of balance. I'm prone to do it. You're prone to do it. We love America. Somebody shoots down one of our unmanned drones. You know when we're young, you know what we think? Bomb them! You shoot down one of our drones, bomb them! You don't mess with the United States. Think that through. What do you mean bomb them? Bomb one of their cities! Think about that. That's some seriously whacked out thinking. You knock down an expensive hunk of metal of ours out of the sky. We're going to drop a bomb on one of your cities where people are just minding their business, watching game day on a Saturday morning with their family, and out of the blue, they are sent into eternity because they knock down a, a $500 million piece of metal that belongs to the United States. We're going to bomb your cities. That's wrong thinking. You saw it in Jacob's sons. Jacob's sons are on the move with Jacob. They have a sister named Dinah. This is back in the book of Genesis. There's a man, a young man, young prince named Shechem, and apparently the town is even named in his name. His father is the king of the village, the city, but Shechem is a young guy, spots Dinah, violates her sexually. But he really likes her, and he now wants to marry her. And so Jacob's sons enter in agreement saying, well, we can't have our sister marry you. We've been circumcised. If you're going to do that, your whole town, all the men in your city have to be circumcised. They deceive the men of that. With whatever it takes, he tells the men of his city to be circumcised. It's all a deception because the third day later, Jacob's sons go into that village, into that town, and kill all the men of the city. Why? Because you raped our sister. We murdered all. That's not eye for an eye. That is wrong. That's totally wrong. But we can associate, right? You'll do that to our sister. And Jacob rebuked them, like, we've got to get out of here. People are going to hate us. People are going to kill us. What have you boys done? It's an eye for an eye. Number three, very quickly, it was to discourage private revenge. This was to discourage. This is a great law. Eye for an eye. You do that, you're going to pay. Now you're going to pay in kind. But it's also to prevent people from just taking justice upon themselves. Someone knocks out the eye of your loved one, there needs to be an investigation. There needs to be a trial. And then the government is supposed to carry out the punishment. This is not meant to be personal vendettas. I'll just carry this out myself. No, now you're breaking the law. You're stepping over. This is meant for the government. Let the government do its job. And so we find three reasons for the ancient law. To deter crime, punish crime, to protect the guilty once they've done it, and to let the government do its job, keep the law, give it time, there'll be eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. Now, before I leave, I want to just 
Several mention this, but one in particular, a man that I quote often, I'll quote him a couple times today. He's really good on his background material, and that's William Barclay. I won't go into it all, but have you guys ever noticed, you'll hear these settlements, and there's these ridiculous amounts of money that are given, rewarded to people. Have you ever noticed that? I, I hear that, and I think, what in the world? That's the craziest thing. I now maybe get a little better understanding of why that happens. Like it or not, this was an ancient law for many civilizations, and Barclay studied it out and said usually, though this was a law, it was not actually carried out physically because some societies, you know, be more civilized or others, like, didn't want to take a chance. What if they have a bad eye and you have a really good eye and the one who offended gets their really good eye taken out and this person had a bad eye anyway or, you know, really, really old, couldn't hardly see, and this is just a young person. Is, is that really? And so what they ended up doing was developing a monetary system of compensation. And they would weigh it on several things. I'll give you four or five or six. First of all, you do that kind of damage to someone. Here's, the first, here's what you're going to pay. Money for what? For they're out of work. For however long they're out of work, you're going to pay their salary. Like, what? I ain't got money for that. You shouldn't have done what you, what you did. Secondly, he also mentions any medical treatment. You're going to pay for all of their medical bills. I can't afford it. You shouldn't have done what you've done. But it goes beyond that. If when they can finally go back to work, what if they had a higher paying job and now they, ha now they can't keep that job because of the injury? They have a lower paying job. Now you're going to pay for the difference between those two on out into the future. And now you can see the money is really starting to add up. Then you're going to pay for pain. And we're not talking about the psychotic person. I love pain. How much would it take for you for somebody to knock your tooth out? I don't know. It sounds kind of fun. I'll do it for free. We're not talking about that nutcase. We're talking about the average person. What would it take? What would somebody have to pay you for you to deal with the pain of getting your eye knocked out? Oh, man, I don't know. Wow. And they get a consensus, and that's what you're going to have to pay for the pain. And then on top of that, what if there is like some loss of dignity or humiliation because of this, how they have to live their life now? You're going to pay for that, so a price would be put on that. What about a loss of a quality of life? You're going to pay for that. Now, all of a sudden, you can see, just knock my eye out. I cannot afford to pay all this. Knock my tooth out. Please just do that. But many put this monetary value upon it. The ancient law of retaliation. We can relate with it. Sounds great to me. It's a wonderful law, and it is a good law. Now back to verse 38 and 39, Matthew 5. Secondly, we're going to find Christ commands our reactions. So there's this ancient law of retaliation. Now we're going to see Christ commands our reactions. That's what we're talking about today. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And that's a fine law. It's a wonderful law. It worked for thousands of years. But I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil. But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. And if anyone would, would, any, and if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with him two miles. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. I don't know about you guys, but the longer I keep teaching through Jesus' lessons and his teaching and his preaching, the more I do that, the more I realize what he keeps teaching goes exactly against my instincts. Jeff Bartlett's instincts are to overpunish. Mine would probably not be to punish in kind. It would be to overpunish. Okay, eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth. That protects against that. I'm just telling you what I would do. Christ goes against everything that is naturally in me and naturally in you guys. But one thing I want to make sure at the outset, as I read this the other day, and I'm looking at all of these lines, I'm, I'm thinking, am I looking at six action reactions? 
Am I looking at six? And then I'm kind of thinking, hold on, maybe I'm looking at five. And as you see on your handout, we're actually going to address four because verse number 42, I'm going to combine the ones that have to do with money, going to combine those into one thought. So I'm going to propose, and I'm not doing this to dodge in any way. I'm going to propose to you that verse 39a is a general statement of which 39b through verse 42 fleshes out in very personal circumstances, personal situations. So I think, I might be wrong here, but I think this phrase, Christ says, I say to you, do not resist the one who is evil, is a general statement that is going to be fleshed out and described by the ones that are following. And this is a very unusual statement to us. And I still confess that I do not fully understand it. But one thing I want to make clear, I'm going to say this like three times today. This is important, all right? Christ is speaking to individual people. Over and over, when you keep reading this word you. So in grammar, we have first person. First person is I. Second person is you. Third person is he or she. If we pluralize those, first person is we. Second person is you all. Third person is they. So these you that Christ keeps using this over and over is in second person singular. Jeff, why are you, why are you insisting? Why are you making a big deal about this? Christ is not up here saying that churches should not resist evil. Well, the church should just shut down and stop trying to resist evil in society. It is not saying for society to stop resisting evil. It is not saying for governments to no longer resist evil. He's talking to individual people. First person I, second person you, singular. In your world, when these things start happening to you, then you do not resist the evil one. And the evil one here is not Satan. It's the one who is doing the act of evil against you. And so he's going to offer, again, I group verse 42 into one thought. And so we're going to look at what I think are four situations, personal situations in which Christ is calling, listen, individual Christians to react a certain way. Number one, when slapped on the right cheek, what do we do? When slapped on the right cheek, Christ says, do not resist the one who is evil. And he spells it out. What does that even mean? But if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. Can I get just a little leeway from you guys, all right? I hope those of you that were with us in Romans in some difficult spots and those of you that were even with us recently in the book of Matthew, right here in chapter 5 a few weeks ago, I hope you know that our tactic and our strategy is not to dodge and avoid and water down difficult passages. Don't try to water down difficult passages. This is a difficult passage. And so my goal here this morning, Jeff's up there going to water it down. I'm telling you, I'm not going to water this passage down. I certainly don't want to be guilty of relaxing what Jesus says. I want to know what it's going to say. I want to know what Christ is really meaning here. Guys, listen, I know I'm going to give an account before God. And so I'd rather go ahead and say the right thing and in a good conscience stand before the Lord. And so what I'm getting ready to say is not an attempt to water down and lessen the message of this text. But I want to know what is really going on here. The easiest thing to do, I'm going to offer to you, would be, look, here's how I could read this. Most of us could look at this whole passage and say, man, this sounds really weird. It goes against our human nature. Good news, though, I can't remember the last time someone slapped me. That's most of us. I don't really have anything in this. I don't think anyone's probably going to slap me in the next five years. Nothing really for me. I don't have a tunic. I don't have a cloak. 
I've never been sued. If I ever am, I guess I'll refer to this, chances are I'll probably live until I die and not be sued. So nothing really here for me. And I don't know what this forced into going one mile means. Doesn't sound like anything for me. No real lessons for me. Guys, I'm telling you, not watering it down, the easiest thing would be to say, well, that doesn't apply to me, that doesn't apply to me, that doesn't apply to me. Well, this verse 42, I probably do need to be real careful there, so I'll kind of get some lessons there and move on. But I want to know what is the passage meaning in its context. What is Christ really saying? And so I want to ask you, look at verse 39b. Look at it with your eyes and answer this question. What is unusual in that verse? Do you see the unusual thing in verse 39? Is there something in the verse, the way Jesus words it, that you're thinking, now hold on. Why did he put that word there? Because I'm going to propose to you, as many others, this word is very key to understanding the passage. Raise your hand if you think you see the word. What is the word? Right. Correct. The word is right. What are you saying, Jeff? Why does Jesus say if someone slaps you in the right cheek? And if you're not tracking yet, you may say, well, what's the big deal about the right cheek? That's important because 90% of the people in the world are right-handed. And so if I'm going to strike someone on the right cheek, and by the way, if I'm wanting to harm someone, I'm right-handed, I'm going to take my chance with my right hand. Actually, I'm not going to slap them. I'm going to use a fist, and I'm going to probably try to punch them on the chin, in the nose, in the mouth, or on the right, or on their left side because I'm right-handed. For me to slap someone means I'm probably coming from behind. That's not quite what Christ is describing. He's not talking about someone attacking you from behind. And by the way, you wouldn't like slap someone up there like that. You'd hit them in the back of the head. Right? You wouldn't slap from the, from, on the right side as they're facing the same direction. So this person is looking at you. I'm not going to slap with my left hand. That just feels totally unnatural. And I'm sure not going to do this motion, right? So we're putting all this together, and we're starting to realize, then why? What's the big deal? I'm telling you, it would have been difficult if Christ just said, if someone ever hits you, turn the other cheek. If someone ever slaps you, turn the other cheek. He intentionally puts this idea of the right cheek if someone slaps you on the right side of the face i believe when they heard that they would have understood what he is saying as i'm about to teach it to you i'm going to borrow from a couple of trusted commentators one is in your handout rc sproul writes the following so again hey the easiest thing is to say man that doesn't apply to me but does it is there something for all of us is there a real message is it really about an open hand slap Sproul writes the following, in view here is hitting someone on the right cheek with the back of your hand, which was the ancient gesture of an insult. Guys, that really is, I think, what that's, I'm not up here to try to like soften it, and man, I don't really like that, and if anybody hits us, we know full well we're going to hit them back. That's, that, that's not an attempt to do that. I want to really know what's happening. He continues, What's in view here is hitting someone on the right cheek with the back of your hand, which was the ancient gesture of an insult. You ever seen those old skits? The Wilds Christian Camp used to do one. 
that have these two like, they were acting like kings that were sitting beside each other. And each one had like a servant and the two kings would get in an argument. And so when it's time to insult the other, the one he gave a nod and his servant grabbed a white glove and went over and slapped the servant of the other one on the side of the face with the backhand movement. And the other king gave a nod to his servant, to which that servant grabbed a white glove and went over to the so each of their servants, and they kept building it up. And each servant ends up slapping the other one back and forth as the kings sat there. You're insulting me by slapping. You slap him back. Okay, this backhand motion, that's not your most powerful movement. This would be much more, as I said, a closed fist. What is happening? Guys, listen. I really think, I'm not going to spend much longer on this point, but this is the point. What do you do when someone insults you? Sproul writes the following. Jesus is talking here about insult and slander. What do you do? Turn the other cheek. Hey, Grace View, you individual, you sitting there listening, someone insults you, what do you do? Barclay adds the following to Sproul's comment. He says, quote, According to Jewish rabbinic law, to hit a man with the back of the hand was twice as insulting as to hit him with the flat of the hand. So what's the point? Twice as insulting. So then what Jesus is saying is, is this. Even if a man, so hear it, taste this. Even if a man should direct at you the most deadly and calculated insult, not just a physical blow. I'm not trying to take away what, from what Christ is saying about a physical blow. But it really is more about this. There's a reason he puts in the word right. Barclay says what Christ is teaching. Even if a man should direct at you the most deadly and calculated insult, you must on no account retaliate. What is Christ really calling for us? Listen, I want to propose to you this. If ever there was a case of, they started it. This is it. Parents, we've had that, right? This, what's going on? They started it. No, you started it. And got Hatfields and McCoys, and they can't remember who really started it. This is a clear case of, they started it, and I'm going to finish it. And so we're not talking about a physical thing. Somebody insults you, slanders you. There are some of you sitting right here. In fact, I could probably name a few of us who back in the day in school, it would be a bad idea to try to get in a cut-down contest with you. You're like, oh, you done messed up now. Why? Uh-oh. They're the king of, of cut-down. They're the king of insults. And you're thinking, I'm getting ready to wear you out. Everybody knew in high school I was it. Everybody knew in college, you've done messed up now. If you knew the dirt I know, you said that about me? I've been sitting on some dirt about you, and I'm going to let it go. You say that, I'm going to tell everybody, okay, that's what we want to do. That's what I want to do. And Christ says, don't do that. Don't do that. Hey, young people, they're slamming you. They're insulting you. Adults, they're slandering you. Don't defend yourself. It's not just don't retaliate. Don't even defend yourself. Leave yourself open to being insulted again. This is the message. I honestly believe when insulted, when slapped, everything wants to do it back. We want to do it more. Can I at least just do a little lesser version? And Christ comes along and says, no, let it go. Don't do it back. Don't do it in kind. Have faith. If I could say this, have faith in God, I believe is what Christ is teaching. Have faith in God what? God will avenge you. I'm getting a little bit ahead into next week's passage. I haven't studied it fully, but I think it's going to move us a little toward back to Romans chapter 12 a little bit. You're going to have enemies, but it is not your job to retaliate. Let God do the retaliating. Don't even defend yourself. And you say, Jeff, this, this just doesn't seem right. 
write the following down. This does not cause, I want to make a couple of quick clarifications. So, Jeff, what do you think? The slap on the right side. Honestly, I think it's talking about when we're insulted. Don't retaliate and don't even start defending yourself. But I want to make two clarifications. Here we go. This passage does not call for governments to ignore crimes. And this does not call for Christians not to report crimes. That's not what it is. No one needs to say, hey, Jesus said, don't resist the one who is evil. If anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to him the other also. We're not supposed to do anything. Christians are just total doormats. I want to clarify what is Christ talking about. Look, hold your spot here. Look over at Romans chapter 13. I mentioned that we had to look at, flip over to four or five passages that apply. So Romans chapter 13. This is talking about the government. Verse 1, we're not looking at verse 1, but it says, let every soul be subject to the, let every person be subject to the governing authorities. Government authorities, remember, who carries out the eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth? The government does. Look at verse number 3. Romans chapter 13, verse 3. For rulers are not a terror to good conduct, but to bad. Would you have no fear of the one who's in authority? Do you want to live a life that you're not afraid of the rulers and the authorities and the officials and the police and the game wardens and on and on down the line? Then do what is good and you will receive his approval. For he is God's servant for your good. Watch what verse 4 says about the rulers. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is the servant of God, an avenger who carries out God's wrath on the wrongdoer. So what does it say? Let God get your vengeance. Let God use the government to get your vengeance back. And so this is not saying government don't punish crimes. Christians don't report crimes. Very quickly, R.T. France offers the following. So catch this, listen to this. A willingness to forego one's own rights and even to allow oneself to be insulted and imposed on is not, hear this, that willingness to live out verse 39 of Matthew 5 is not incompatible with a firm stand for justice in principle and for the rights of others. This is technical, hang with me. You say, if I live out and I let these things happen to me and I don't retaliate and I don't even defend myself, then what, what will happen? Are we just supposed to let them run over everyone? No, that idea is not incompatible with a firm stand for justice in principle and for the rights of others. I think he's on to something. That's why I used it. I think the takeaway this morning from the first point, when you're insulted, when you're slandered, it's this. Hey, 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 hey. You can talk about me. But you can't talk about them. I'm not going to retaliate and talk about you. But I'm going to defend them. And hey, 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 you can talk about me, but you're not going to talk about God. I'm going to defend God. Christ cleansed the temple of the evil ones who were making a mockery of the Lord's house. Is Jesus contradicting his own terms? What's he doing? It sounds like he's resisting the evil ones. But notice what he's doing. He's not defending himself. What does he call the temple? He says, it is my what? My father's house. He's defending the father. You can do to me, but I'm going to defend my father's house. There was a big showdown one time. Two big dogs, right? Paul rebukes Peter in front of people. And I don't know how it really fully went, but there was a meal, and somewhere in there, 
I'm assuming that Paul gets up. Peter's going to leave because some friends from Jerusalem who are legalists are coming where they're eating with a bunch of Gentiles. Peter hears the legalists from Jerusalem are coming. He's going to exit real quick so they don't see him eating with Gentiles. And somewhere, I don't know if it was several tables over or if Paul got up out of his seat and said, hey, where do you think you're going? I've got to go. I know where you're going. You sit back down. And everybody's like, this is the two big guys, man. we got Paul and Peter. What's happening here? And Paul's like, you sit back down. I don't care if they're coming or not. We're not too good for these people. These are brothers and sisters in Christ. I don't care if they are Gentiles. Let those people think what they want to think. You sit down. If it was good yesterday, then it's good today. Not just because they're coming, you're not going to leave. Sit down. I'll take some mashed potatoes. (laughs) And like, Paul is not defending Paul. He's defending the Gentiles. There's nothing wrong with that. Take a stand for justice. Defend others. Just don't defend you. Don't defend you. Number two. I kind of wish I had worded this second a little differently. But it is what it is if you want to write a second thought near it. So what's the second personal situation? How do we react when sued for personal possessions? Or we could say, so you're writing, when sued for personal possessions. We're at verse 40. Or you could say, when sued for what belongs to you. Let's talk about that for just a moment. Verse number 30, I'm sorry, verse 40 says, and, so already, okay, anybody insults me, backhanded comment to me, I don't retaliate, I don't even defend myself. Maybe someone else defends me, but I don't. And again, that first point doesn't mean we won't defend our country, it doesn't mean we won't defend our family, and it doesn't mean we won't defend others. We just don't defend ourselves. Verse 40 Goes the next step. And if anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. You're being sued. They're suing you for your tunic. Let them have that and your cloak as well. What in the world is this about? Go with me if you would. Hold your spot. Exodus 22. Exodus chapter 22. Flip back there. So I know that we're in the book of Matthew, right? So we've been in Matthew for a long, long time. But have you been paying attention how... Much of the scripture studying Matthew keeps forcing us to go back and look at. It forces us often into books like James and Romans and Galatians. And of course these books of the law. Exodus chapter 22. Let's look at the law of Israel. Look at verse 26. So for clarification here we're going to kind of go back and see the law for context. Verse 26. If ever you... So we're in chapter 22, Exodus, verse 26. If ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge. So you've loaned them money. I need to know that you're going to pay it back. I will. All right, give me your cloak as a pledge, kind of some collateral. Their law says if ever you take your neighbor's cloak in pledge, you shall return it to him before the sun goes down. Well, that's kind of weird. What was the point? Do I get it again tomorrow morning? I don't know. Maybe it allows for that, getting it again tomorrow morning. But you give it at night, or maybe it's just one time you give it to me symbolically. We both know that it's mine, but I've got to give it back to you. Why? What's happening? Verse 27, for that is his only covering, and it is his cloak for his body. The Lord says, in what else shall he sleep? And there's like an unending, just kind of hovers there. God says, and if he cries to me because you kept the cloak, If he cries to me, I will hear, for I am compassionate. He doesn't even finish the thought, but I think it's as though the Lord says, 
If I find that he cries out to me because he's cold at night, I'll hear it and I'm not going to be happy with you. I'll give it back, Lord. I will give it back. I don't want you angry. I'm compassionate. Give him his cloak back. So now, what is this all about and how does it tie into Matthew 5? I'm not going to do this all morning, but I'm going to ask for your patience. I'm going to borrow heavily from, from Barclay on this one. We ready? I'm going to borrow heavily from him here because he is so really good on the background material. He writes the following. So look at verse 40 again, back in Matthew 5. So grace for you, let's learn this. If anyone would sue you and take your tunic, let him have your cloak as well. The easy thing this morning would be to say, okay, I don't know what that means. I don't have a cloak, don't have a tunic, so this doesn't apply. Or should we say, how does this apply? What's going on? Barclay writes the following, quote, so catch it. The tunic was the long inner garment made of cotton or linen. That's the part that's worn against the skin. He says the poorest man would have a change of tunics. Not, that's a general statement. He's not saying every poor person would have multiple tunics. Just by and large, it's understood. Poor, even a poor person would have a change of tunics. But here's something different. He says the cloak was the great blanket-like outer garment which a man wore as a robe by day and used as a blanket at night. Of such garments, the Jew would only have one. So he's not saying wealthier Jews. They're going to have several of these. But the average Jew is going to have one cloak, more than one tunic, one cloak. Why is that important? He writes, now it was actually the Jewish law that a man's tunic, the under one, the cotton, linen one, might be taken as a pledge. He'll have a backup, but not his cloak. So I could get the tunic, but if I take the cloak, got to give it back to you. Can't keep it. The law forbids me from keeping it. Okay, great. Let's move on to the third point. No, hold on. What's Jesus saying? They can sue for the tunic. They don't have legal grounds to have the cloak. Why would you offer the cloak? Barclay continues. The point is that by right, a man's cloak could not be taken permanently from him. So then, Jesus says, well, let him have the cloak. So then what Jesus is saying is this. Hear it, Grace View. The Christian never stands upon his rights. That's my right. You can't have my cloak. You might try to sue me for my tunic. You can't have my cloak. Christ says, let him have the cloak. What's going on? Barclay continues. He says, this is what Christ is saying. Hear it again. The Christian never stands upon his rights. He never disputes about his legal rights. He does not consider himself to have any legal rights at all. And he makes some commentary. There are people who are forever standing on their rights. Can I just interject this? Our country and Europe are obsessed with rights right now. Everybody's rights. This one and this one and this one and this one. And a lot of that needs addressed. And we're talking about individual situations. We're not talking here about society. And a lot of that needs addressed. Christ is talking about you. Second person singular. You, 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 me. Stop worrying about your rights. Barclay continues. He says churches are tragically full of people like that. Officials whose territory has been invaded. Office bearers who have not had their rights. He says people like that have not even begun to see what Christianity is. I'm going to just let that hang 
Guys, I'm going to tell you, I don't sense that here. I don't sense that here, but I'm telling you, it can creep in. Jeff, what are you talking about? Just pretend. Let's say you've worked in a ministry, starting on a lower level, and for 21 years, you work in the same place. And maybe at the end of 21 years, you're like in a higher perceived position. Maybe in that ministry, you're an assistant to the pastor. The lesson what Christ is saying here is, everybody else may say, they've got a right to that position. You don't have any rights to the position. Stop thinking about your rights. I think Christ is hitting at something he's going to bring in later. What kind of person has no rights? What kind of people have no rights? A what? A slave, a servant. I think Christ is saying, get that other ownership, me, mine. I've done this. Everybody knows I'm the one that's over that. Here come, who do they think they are trying to take my spot? Let it go. You're trying to do that? Take this too. You may find out it's a little more work than you thought. I'll just serve over here. I'm not going to fight you for stuff. Give up this rights mentality. One more from Barclay on this. He says, the Christian thinks not of his rights, but of his duties. Not owed anything. He doesn't think of his privileges, but of his responsibilities. That's how a Christian thinks. The worldly mindset is, I'm owed that. I, that belongs to me. You better not think you're going to do that. Christ says, let it go. Don't fight for it. Don't defend yourself. Don't resist the one who's evil. Others may defend you. You don't need to do it. Verse 41. Number three. What's the fourth personal situation? When forced into service. Let's talk about this one briefly. This will probably be the shortest. Verse 41. When forced into service. Look at it. And if anyone forces you to go one mile, go with them two miles. And we read that. And I, I'll tell you guys, I wouldn't expect you to have a clue what that means. So we've got to go back. Really, in this culture, would they have a clue? What is he talking about? Write this down. Verse, 40, verse 41 speaks of impressment into service by a foreign occupying army. Verse 41, Jesus says, if you're forced to go one mile, go two. What is this? This is impressment into service by a foreign occupying army. I'm going to tell you, I was born in 1970. You were born much older, earlier than that, or later than that. I don't care. You know what we've not had here in the United States? No one has come up once we've declared our independence and won our independence. People don't drive up in their boats into Charleston Harbor. They're not bringing up ships and bringing out amphibious land machines and just taking over South Carolina. And all of a sudden, we're living under the rule of another country, and they tell us what to do. What is happening here is an occupying country has the right to tell the citizens to do certain acts of service. Israel at this time lived under Rome. And Rome, legally, all these Jews who are hearing this would know that Rome had every right to tell them that a soldier could come up and say, you need to carry my luggage, my bag, something that I have here. I'm asking you to carry it for a mile. A Roman mile was almost as long as one of our miles currently. And so they could legally say, hey, you, there, grab that. That's my stuff. I need you to take it that direct. And you have to obey. You don't have any choice. Jesus was beaten, wearied from the night in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's too weak to carry the cross. And those soldiers know full well, I'm not carrying it. He's having a hard time carrying it. You, get over here. Yes, carry his cross. 
And so Simon of Cyrene had to carry the cross of the Lord, which tells us it would have been within a Roman mile from where he started carrying the cross. All right, that's nice. What does that have to do with us? Because we don't have an occupying army. I want to know what Jesus is teaching. And so I'm going to offer you the following. Though hard for us to relate, the lesson still applies. Here it is. I believe this. The day may come when we're occupied by someone else and they tell us what to do. What about in the meantime? Here we go. When, Grace for you, ready? We make disciples by teaching what Christ teaches and then observing it in our lives. When an authority gives you an undesired assignment. When an authority, I believe this is what Christ is saying, when an authority gives you an undesired assignment, I don't want to do that. What do you do? Be more than obedient with disgust. I'll do it. <sighs> Eyes rolling, slamming it around, huffing, puffing, mumbling, grumbling. You know what Christ is saying? If an authority has given you an assignment, even though it may not be the one that you would like to be doing, but they are your authority, do it. And don't just do it spitefully and disgustedly. Change your attitude. Gracefully, what if we went through life doing this? Someone that's over us, I don't really want to do it. I have to do it. What he's saying is, you have to do the first mile. After the first mile, I'm asking you to do more than this. I'm asking you to do your best in the first mile. And when the first mile is done, offer to do more. Offer to be more helpful. What if it happened this way? Hey, Cap, yes, sir. Your mile was actually up 100 yards ago. Oh, all righty. Where, where are you taking this? I'm actually taking it up there. How far? Probably another 300 yards or so, but you're good. You want me to help you? What did you say? You want me just to go ahead and finish the last 300? <laughs> What's this guy? What are you saying? I have brought it this far. You, you want me to go ahead and take it? Yeah. Yeah, go ahead and take it on right, right up there. We'll be up there in a minute. What impact would that have had on a Roman centurion? Do you know the Jews were hated by the Romans and they were seen as some of the worst of the people that the Romans ruled over? They were constantly stirring up trouble. They despised the Romans, and here comes Christ. Of course, his enemies are going to look against him, but Christ is saying, don't just do it. Do it with a good attitude. Do your best. Offer to do more. I'm, I'm going to leave this in a moment. If that was the attitude toward them, kids, then what is the attitude toward your parents? Your parents say, do this. You don't have any choice if you're going to obey God. You don't have any choice for that first mile. <laughs> I did it. Slam. Eyes rolling. Huffing, puffing. Stop it. Anything else? When they get up off the floor. What'd you say? Uh, I did my room and I did that and that and that. Anything else? No, I think you're good. We're like, what's going on? That's awesome. They're like, okay. Your teacher. They give these things called assignments. We don't like them. Do your best. And anything else? Adults, your boss. Oh, I don't want to do it. Do your best. Anything else? Would it be helpful if I do this? 
Actually, yeah, why don't you go ahead? <laughs> go ahead. Never had anybody offer to do that, but yeah, that'd be wonderful. Our rulers, don't just do the least with a bad attitude. Do more than obedience with disgust. See, eye for an eye is very calculated and precise, and it's very cold. Isn't this my mile? No, you got about 100 more feet, buddy. All right. Isn't this it? Five more feet. Could you picture that? Three more. There. They're going to hate you. Go above and beyond. Grace is generous and warm. Lastly, verse 42. How do we respond personally when asked for charity or a loan? Verse 42 says, Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. Give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And right now some may be saying, Boy, I didn't really like the first three points. I really don't like this one. So I'm going to check my phone and see how the weather is in, in uh, Chicago. Don't do that. Just stay with it. All right? What's Christ calling for? He's calling for generosity. Go with me, Deuteronomy chapter 15. Let's go quickly. Deuteronomy 15. I realize these are unusual passages that we're looking at, but they're, they're good for us. We want to know what our Lord teaches, and He is the Lord. Deuteronomy 15, you're probably going to want to follow there, all right? If you have on your phone or tablet. If not, it will be on the screen, but this will be good to kind of keep it in front of you. You can kind of look back to it for a moment. I'm going to read verses 7 through 11. We're talking about what to do when asked for charity or a loan. Here we go. I'm not taking time to go back and read verses 1 through 6, but they really factor in if you want to do that on your own time. Verse 7, here we go. Here's what the law taught. If among you, this is the Jews. By the way, does everybody know what Deuteronomy is? So Deuteronomy was given to the Jews in the 40th year of the wilderness wanderings. So they received the law back in 1445 B.C., but now it's around 1400. They're getting ready, I'm sorry, they're, they're getting ready to go into the promised land. And so now after 39 years in the wilderness, they're up to the Jordan River getting ready to cross over, and God's giving them last-minute instructions, a lot of rehashing and reviewing some of the previous, and he's just getting one more time this mindset that is supposed to be theirs right before they cross to the promised land, and God's going to give them this great victory. Verse number 7. He's talking about when you get in there. If among you, one of your brothers. I want you to notice the word brothers. That's emphasized here. It's also emphasized in the New Testament. Do good unto all men, especially unto them who are of the household of faith. If among you, verse 7, one of your brothers, Jewish brothers, if he should become poor. Let's just acknowledge it. Sometimes people become poor. In their culture, they did not want them staying poor. This was not people that weren't working and became poor. This was folks that maybe it was a disease or an injury or a death and things happened. Something happened to a crop of theirs. Some, maybe some animal ravished. And all of a sudden they find themselves in a poor position. If among you. So he's saying here's what's going to happen when you get in there. One of your brothers should become poor. In any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not harden your heart. Catch that. You shall not. That's internal. You shall not harden your heart. Or shut your hand against your poor brother. That's external. Don't harden your heart. Don't shut your hand against your poor brother. But you shall open your hand to him, external, and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. Verse 9 goes back to the internal. Take care, 
lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart. Thought in the heart. Watch the thoughts of the heart and you say. Here's what you're saying to yourself. You're not saying it out loud. You're thinking it's inside. The seventh year. The year of release is near. And your eye looked grudgingly on your poor brother and you give him nothing. And he cried to the Lord against you and you be guilty of your sin. Look this way just for a moment. Verses 1 through 6, it's talking about every seven years there would be a releasing of the debt. If another Jew owed a Jew money for a loan, then at every seven years, all of it's released. And so they get a do-over. They literally get a reset at least every seven years. They may find themselves in servitude, but within seven years, they're going to get out of it. What the Lord is saying is, be careful. Don't let this thought be in your mind. We're five and a half months from the reset. And he's asking me for something, and we're setting up this three-year payback plan. But I know good and well, I've got to release the debt here in five and a half months. I don't think I want to give. The Lord says, don't let that thought enter your mind. Look at verse 9 again. Take care lest there be an unworthy thought in your heart and you say, the seventh year, the year of release is near and your eye look grudgingly. The way you look at them. They need, have a need. And you're, that's your poor brother. And you give him nothing and he cried to the Lord against you and you be guilty of sin. You shall, verse 10, you shall give to him freely and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him. Because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. For there will never cease to be poor in the land. Jeff, is this a contradiction of what verses 1 through 6 said? Where verses 1 through 6 said you're not going to have poor in your land. Which is it? You're not going to have continuously poor people in your land because you're going to follow these instructions. Jews, as you, Israel, as you follow these instructions, you'll not have continuously poor people. Poverty will arise and you're going to address it. The, end, the middle of verse 11. Therefore I command you, you shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. I'm not going to reread all that again. Let's take some quick notes. First one's not in your handout. Ready? Their brother. If an Israelite loaned to another Israelite, you don't charge him interest, and he's going to pay you back the loan, but at the point of seven-year release, you're going to release him. What about a foreigner that has a loan? They're going to pay it. They don't get released after seven years. There were differences. There was a special treatment of the brother. You help take care of the foreigner, but you especially take care of the brother. Again, you find some of that same mentality that passes over into the New Testament. Christians, you do good for all people, but especially we do good for one another. Write these down. God sees and cares about our attitude in giving. What is your attitude? Well, I did it. I paid them. I gave them some. I cut them a check. There. Be done with me. <laughs> Don't ever come back here again. Man, I hate that guy. Don't think that. God sees your attitude. Did you notice these words? Heart, thought, I, grudgingly, freely. Second thought. Don't let the loss of the debt deter you from giving. Don't think, man, it's five months from the release. I'm going to give you something. Normally people pay that back three, four, five years. I'll never see this again. Don't let that keep you from giving. Forethought. In verse number nine, refusing to give in this situation is called a sin. It would be sin not to give. And then the forethought here comes out of verse number 10. And it's this. God promised to bless they're giving. God actually promises to bless their giving. 
Look again at verse 10. You shall give him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. Now, I've got a fudge just to touch. Okay, watch. I'm going to read Proverbs 19. It's not on the screen. Listen to verse 17. This is important. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. See that last note? God promises to bless their giving in verse 10. Maybe, but that was gone to print, and our screens were made, and this thought occurred to me, and I reread verse 10 later, and I thought, that may not really be what verse 10 is saying, but that is what Proverbs 19:17 is saying. So I'm protecting myself a little bit. Read it again, verse 17 of Proverbs 19. Whoever is generous to the poor lends to the Lord, and he will repay him for his deed. So God will bless your giving. Now look at verse 10 one more time. Look at it, it's important. You shall give to him freely, and your heart shall not be grudging when you give to him, because for this the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. It could be saying, when you do this giving, God's going to bless your work. Or is it saying, watch, you're getting ready to go into the promised land. You haven't even got there yet, but when you get there, I'm going to bless your land. I'm going to bless your work. Why? For this. Look in the middle of verse 10. Let me find it again. Because for this. So don't be grudging. Because for this, the Lord your God will bless you in all your work and in all that you undertake. When you get there, I'm going to bless it. Why? For this. Everybody in here, let me ask you. How's business been the last few years? How's your income been the last few years? Some would say, not good, I'm struggling. Then you don't have it to give. But some of you are saying, it's been good. It's been really good. Why? Well, I'm smart. I work really hard. Caught a couple of breaks. Had a timely thing or two. Had an open door. Again, I'm smart. I work really hard. I have a skill that our society places a high value on. Listen, all of that may be true. But that doesn't answer why business has been good and why your income's been blessed. Why? A Christian knows, though some of those things may be true, you want to know why? It's an outpouring of the grace of God. God loves me and he's blessed me with a good business and with a good income. So it's an outpouring. It's a blessing. It's a display of grace. That's how you better think of it. He's the one who gave you those smarts and gave you that skill. And let that timely thing happen. And let someone at just the right time fall together. And all of a sudden, things are going good. It was, I'm telling you, it wasn't all you. This is a, this is a display of God's grace. But it's also this. It's a stewardship. You do know why I gave you that, right? For me. For me. For me and mine. To live it up. It is a blessing. Listen, I'm not too. It is a blessing from the Lord, and God wants you to enjoy his blessings. But Matthew 5, Jesus says, Give to the one who begs from you. Do not refuse the one who will borrow from you. Can I add this, and I hope I'm not harming the passage. We do need to be discerning. If I'm over here at the convenience store and somebody's asking you for money, you're there. Hey, man, can I have, can I have $50? $50? 
and you do what you should, why do you want $50? Honestly, yeah. Uh, my dealer's right over there. I'm going to go see him right quick. I'm going to go inside and get me a case, pick me up some smokes, a few lottery tickets, going back over to the apartment and watch some Jerry Springer. <laughs> Middle of the day? And what time do you work? Oh, I had not had a job in years. You look fine to me. Yeah, I don't, I don't work, man. Can I have $50? I don't know that the Lord wants us to give to fund their gambling and drinking and drugs and, and just bad living. But I'll tell you one thing. I think most Christians use that as an excuse to err on the, I'm not going to give it all. Or, here's a good one. I do all my giving at the church. And you should do your giving at the church. But what about when the Lord comes to, a need comes to you? Well, they, they may do the wrong things with it. Jesus says, give to the one who begs from you and do not refuse the one who would borrow from you. And I know the New Testament says they don't work, they don't eat, so we're not funding laziness. But things happen to people, and when they do, why did God bless you for that time period? We need to consider that. One more quote from Barclay. I want you to taste this, hear it. It is better to help a score, I think that's 20, it's better to help a score of fraudulent beggars than to risk turning away the one man in real need. I agree with that. I think God would honor that. You may find out, man, they, they took you for a little bit of a ride and they took advantage. Yep. But God knew your heart. Again, we don't knowingly supply and fund drug problems and laziness, and gambling. I'm not going to do that. It's the Lord's money. But when in doubt, and you have it, obviously we can't give what we don't have. We're not going to go in debt ourselves to give for somebody else's debt. We can't do that. Can I close with these thoughts? Matthew 26, verse 67. So Jeff, this is a, this is a tough passage. I agree. Matthew chapter 26, verse 67 the Bible says about Jesus, then they spit in his face and struck him. And some slapped him, saying, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who is it that struck you? Did you catch that? Look at it. They spit. You're talking about the worst of insults, probably. They spit in his face. Struck him means the fist. And some slapped. I'm pretty sure what that means. <laughs> Who struck you as he had his head covered? And he's just hit. What does Christ do? Oh, yeah? <laughs> Blows him. No, he doesn't blow him away. He just takes it. Take. Christ is not calling us to do anything that he's not willing to do himself. What is your attitude in the following things? Because I'm closing with this thought. The easiest thing would be to say, can't remember when someone slapped me, never been sued, we're not under foreign occupation. I don't really have a lot of people asking me for money, so I think I'm pretty good on this passage. I don't really like it, but I think I can get out of it. Now, here's the questions. Honestly, here's our closing. What do you do when someone insults you? What do you do when someone slanders you? Christ is saying, be long-suffering. What do you do when someone robs you of what is rightfully yours and what is your proper rights? Be humble. Be humble. You're fighting for that? I'm not going to fight you for that. Here, take it. That's fine. I'll serve God in this way. What do you do when you're pressed to do something and forced to do something you're not really excited about? Again, be humble and be helpful. Do the best you can and help the person. What do you do when you're approached about a financial need? What Christ is saying is be generous. If I've blessed you with that, it's for a reason. It's a stewardship. 
It's an opportunity. Help people. Guys, I'll propose to you. If Christians lived out this passage in Matthew 5, what effect would that have on the world? I think they would become thirsty for the cause of Christ. They may think we're weird, but they're going to recognize that is love. Those people love each other. Our love will not win them to Christ, but our love may get an audience to share the love of Christ. You say, Jeff, man, all these passages have been tough, but I'm just going to tell you, I just don't know that I can do this one. You're right. You can't. This is not possible in your ability but I'm going to promise you this. It is not hard when the Spirit is guiding you. When you're insulted and the Holy Spirit is truly carrying the day, He's controlling you, it is not hard not to retaliate. It is not hard not to defend. Now, without the Spirit, and it's just you running the show inside, and you've suppressed Him, you're going to have a hard time. And when someone's trying to take what is yours, when, when the Spirit is in control, it's not hard. And someone's asking and you have it, it is not hard and you don't look grudgingly. It really isn't hard. And when someone's asking you to do something and the Holy Spirit's in charge, it's like, and what else can I do for you? Like, what? What else can I do for you? It really isn't hard when the Spirit's in control. Outside of the Spirit, it's like impossible. You can't do it. The fruit of the Spirit is love and joy and peace and long-suffering and gentleness and goodness and meekness and faith and temperance when He's in control. Look at this list. All of those apply, but love, when the Spirit's in control, all of a sudden I'm loving this person. I'm patient with this person. I'm kind to this person. I'm good to this person. I have self-control. I'm not going to show them how sharp my tongue is. It's been plenty sharp in the past, but I'm going to let that one slide. Would you bow your heads just for a moment? Our Lord is calling us today, I think, to four thoughts. Four thoughts. 